Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Jesus had sent out his 12. He had empowered them and sent them out. They went out and, and really preached the gospel. And uh, then Jesus comes back and teaches about the cost of following him. And here we go to chapter 10, verse 38. Allow me to read. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And this is God's word. We're going to read verses 1 to 4 as we go um, in chapter 11. We are concluding a series this week, today. This is the last sermon of a very short series. We call it the language of salvation. What we mean is that uh, what does it really mean to be saved? What does it really mean to be transformed? It means that we have a new identity. It means that we've experienced forgiveness from God. It means that we've been healed into God's righteousness. And today we're talking about rest. That being saved, experiencing salvation, means that we experience the deep soulful rest that is offered to us by Jesus. And here's this passage, Jesus is ever the teacher. He's literally sitting down to teach his people, to teach the disciples that have come with him as they gathered at this house, uh, house of Martha, ancient teachers. Today in our classroom setting, the teacher is always standing, but in the ancient society, the teacher always sat. Rabbis, the distinguished ones, always sat as people gathered around him. And here's Mary. Mary is working with Martha at their home, preparing this, this banquet, this, this dinner, this meal. Inviting somebody to dinner in your home was always a, an expression of deep intimacy. They were friends. And as Jesus is sitting and teaching, Martha and Mary preparing a meal, Mary leaves the preparation time and comes to sit with Jesus. And that's where we are. That's where verse 38 begins. There are three things that we're going to learn today. Three things that this passage teaches us. And it teaches us what happens when we have a relationship with Jesus. Very simple. You have a new agenda. That's what the gospel gives us. A new agenda. You have a new religion or a new view of what good is. And you have a new relationship. You have a new agenda because you have a new definition of what good is. And lastly, because you have a new relationship. First, a new agenda. The gospel radically transcends all cultural and society, societal views of people, one another, our agenda. Here's Mary. She sits down to learn from Jesus. In those days, we said that uh, rabbis sat and taught. But one thing that rabbis never did, they never taught women. In the ancient days, rabbis would, you would never see rabbis teaching women. Why? Because in those days, women had no rights. Women had few to no standing socially. And so this is a remarkable thing that's taking place. In this day, in this time period, what does this tell you? Mary has a place by Jesus. 
by one of the most distinguished rabbis, Mary has a place. Mary is accepted. In fact, Jesus honors Mary in this passage. He says she has done what is better. And he's honoring, she's, she's showcased here. And what you see is Christianity or the gospel or coming to Jesus, on one hand, what that means is that Jesus is more conservative than any other conservative today. On the other hand, here's an example. Jesus says, don't commit adultery. It is written, do not commit adultery. But Jesus says, but I tell you, anyone who looks at another person lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. It's more conservative than even the most conservative people in that day, let alone today. But on the other hand, Jesus is more liberal than any other liberal today. Jesus is more conservative than any member of the red states in our country today, and at the same time, more liberal than anybody living in the blue states in our country today. Why? Rodney Stark, he's a uh, professor of sociology and comparative religion at the University of Washington. Um, He wrote, his seminal work is The Rise of Christianity, and uh, here he's talking about how did Christianity grow Make it out of even the first century, especially with the claims of Christ. How did Christianity make it out of the first century? And here is uh, here's his, his initial conclusion. The early Christian movement was a movement of the dispossessed, meaning that it attracted the marginalized and the poor. On one hand, the church was very conservative. While the Greco-Roman world believed in abortion and female infanticide, the early church refused the practice of abortion and refused to kill off their babies. The early church frowned on extramarital affairs. On the other hand, the church was radically liberal with respect to the status of people in society. Slaves, children, orphans, widows, the sick, they were all embraced. While society disfranchised widowed women who were not remarried after a certain number of years, the early church supported these women financially. They made it clear that a woman should not have to rely on marriage as their life support. Women flocked to the church and play large roles in its growth, all because Jesus' kingdom viewed status, power, and worth differently than the kingdoms of the world. Women were marginalized, and yet here you have Mary sitting by Jesus and learning. What that tells us is that Mary had a place. Women the marginalized, the poor, they all had a place. And why? Because on one hand, even though Christianity says Jesus is the only way to get access to God, very exclusive, on the other hand, it is the most inclusive faith in all of world history because it doesn't depend on your status, it doesn't depend on your pedigree, it doesn't depend on your wealth or your socioeconomic standing, it doesn't matter what kind of educational background you have or what, whether you are a male or a female, whether you are acceptable to society or put, to down, put down by society. The gospel transcends all these society and cultural values because the gospel says you have a place. Anybody can have a place by Jesus. That's the gospel giving us a new agenda. Mary has a place. Now, why? Here's the second point. The gospel gives us a new view of what it means to be acceptable before God. What that means is the gospel gives us a new type of religion, a whole new way of viewing what is good, a whole new way of viewing goodness, how we can really connect with God. And we see this beginning in verse 40. 
What do we read here? But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha was serving. Martha was preparing this meal for Jesus. But she's frustrated. Why? In those days, to prepare a meal for somebody, like I said, it was incredibly, it was an act of incredible intimacy. And uh, when you invited somebody over, especially a group of people over, the, the feast, has, it has to be an incredible banquet. And you take tremendous care and meticulous quality to prepare this kind of feast for, for your friends, for this intimate setting. And if you failed, if the feast wasn't good, if the meal wasn't well prepared, you were an embarrassment to your entire community. And so here's Martha. Jesus is already there. She's trying to finish up her meal. And Mary leaves her and sits by Jesus. And she's frustrated. Why? Because her family's reputation, her family's uh, standing in the community, it's all at stake. She's about to risk tremendous uh, embarrassment to the family. So she's stressed and she's frustrated. And she makes two interesting comments to Jesus. One is, don't you care? And the second thing she says is, tell Mary to come and help me. Don't you care? Tell Mary to come and help me. In other words, first, don't you care? Martha's saying, Jesus, don't you notice what I'm doing here? She's working to gain Jesus' attention. She's working to earn a relationship, earn her standing with her works. Don't you see how hard I'm working? Don't you see all the good things I'm doing for you? I'm doing, I mean, there's nobody else she's really doing it for presently, at least physically. I'm doing this for you. I'm preparing this meal for you. I'm risking family embarrassment for you. Putting all this work, I could be sitting there and listening to you, but I'm working. And why is she working? She's working to earn standing. She's working for honor from God. So her work really is not for Jesus, uh, implicitly at least, but it's for herself so she can be honored, so she could earn a place, so that that would be her sense of worth. So that don't you care is a plea. I'm working so that you will notice me. I'm working so that you will acknowledge me. I'm working so that you will care for me. I'm working so that you will love me, so that I can feel your love, so that I can know and be secure that you love me because you're honoring me. Now, Martha wasn't doing a bad thing. She's actually doing a wonderful thing for Jesus. She was doing a great thing, but John Calvin often said, it's not the bad things that do us in. It's our addiction to being good. It's our addiction to our goodness that often gets us. What's the text saying here? Throughout the Bible, we learn at least this thing, that the good things we do are sometimes worse than the bad things. Why? It's because we're trying to use these good things as proof that we have a relationship with God when oftentimes we are so distant, so lacking in intimacy with God himself. And that leads us to working. We're constantly working, working to get rid of our guilt. What we're doing is we're trying to clean ourselves because if I can just do this thing, then God will approve of me because I know deep inside I've done all these other bad things. And what it does is it leaves us feeling insecure or feeling inadequate, always unsure of where we really stand with God. And on one hand, although we're very insecure, what does that insecurity do? 
It makes us feel very entitled. Why? God owes me. He owes me a good life. Why? Because I've listened to him. I'm the one that did obey. Like the prodigal son, the one who stayed at home, the one who's working out in the field, he says, Father, I slaved for you. I worked hard for you. I wasn't like my brother that went out and squandered all your money with prostitutes. I actually stayed home and I worked hard for you. And you never gave me not even a small goat to celebrate with my friends. What does the father say in that parable? You're always with me. I'm always with you. You're always invited in. Everything I have is yours. That's actually what he says. What he's saying to his son is, there is a celebration going on and you are invited. But because of your bitterness and your goodness, you feel so entitled, you can't hear the music. You can't hear the music of grace. Because what you're saying to our Father in heaven, what we're saying is, if I live a good life, then God can't punish me. If I live a good life, God owes me. And what it does is it leads me to work. You have a very restless heart. Now, the second thing that uh, Martha says is, tell Mary to help me. Martha wants Mary disciplined. And she's pointing at Mary, and what she's saying is, look at what I'm doing. Notice what I'm doing and what Mary is not doing. And that is the common thing that we do oftentimes when we're in the church. It's why most people avoid the church. It's why many people don't like walking into a church, avoid pastors, and oftentimes avoid people who've grown up in the church. Because oftentimes, us We, in the church, we look at people who are not there and we say, they don't live like us. The religious look at the irreligious and we judge them. And in turn, what happens is the irreligious look at the religious and they judge us. Here's Martha looking at Mary, saying, she doesn't live the way I'm I'm living. Tell her to come and help because that's, what does that do? It makes Martha feel good about herself. And oftentimes what we do is we step all over other people. Even in our jobs, we look at people who don't do, who can't do what we do, and we say, I'm better. It makes us feel better about ourselves. We have siblings who look at each other and say, well, he or she is not like me. Dad, mom, I'm better. It starts from birth. We're constantly comparing ourselves with people who are not like us because it gives us, in our own way, a sense of worth because we've earned our righteousness. That's what it means to be self-righteous, self-justifying. Now, what do you learn from this? Martha believes that she's earned God's favor. She's earned Jesus' favor, but it doesn't give her any joy. She's angry. She's so angry. She's so frustrated, and it's making her angrier to see what Mary's doing. And what's the result? She's comparing her achievements with those who are not living up to her standards, And when you live comparing yourself with other people like that, what does the Bible tell you here? What is this text telling us? It only leads to frustration. It only leads to dissatisfaction. It only leads to greater inadequacy, greater insecurity, greater lack of joy. And there's nothing like being in a worship service and not experiencing the joy that comes from God's grace, experiencing grace. Because you don't feel connection. We're here to worship God, but we don't feel connection with him. Martha, she's pleading to be noticed for her sacrifice. She's, but she's frustrated because she doesn't have a relationship. Mary, she was working, but she leaves because of the relationship. Martha, she's using Jesus as a way to get a sense of worth. Mary, she's intimate with Jesus. Why? It's because Jesus is her sense of worth.
One person is working to get a relationship. The other person left her work because she has a relationship. So here's a question. When do you pray? If you look at the patterns of when you pray, when do you pray? When do you actually open your Bible up and read? When do you feel most adequate to serve? Why do you do those things? Is it to get close with God? Is it to get something from God? The Bible says this, the reason why we're always busy, the reason why we're always frustrated, the reason why we're always comparing ourselves with other people, the reason why we have no joy, the reason why we're constantly, why our prayer life stinks, our Bible reading stinks, the reason why that happens is because we don't have intimacy. At the moment, we don't have a vital, intimate relationship with God. We're just working to earn it. We're constantly working to earn it. You ever try to go to a meal with somebody that you don't know and you've got to pay for that meal? Ever do that? You sit down and you're paying for a meal for a person you, don't really, you only know superficially and meal after meal you get together and it's always just superficial. You don't get deep. It feels like work. That's what it is. You're in this incredibly intimate opportunity and you're just working and you don't let the you don't, you're not popping the cork off the wine. You're not letting it breathe. You're not letting it grow. That's what this is. You can't enjoy the meal. Religion is outside in. I have to live right in order to be acceptable to God. And if you live like that, you're always working. You're constantly preparing the meal. You're working for intimacy because a meal meant intimacy. But you don't ever experience the joy of living like that. And the irony was that Martha was here in the context of intimacy All of her friends are in the context of intimacy, and yet she's constantly working. The gospel, on the other hand, is inside out. I am already accepted. I am already loved. That is to experience grace. And based on that, that's what's fueling my service. Because I've experienced grace, now I can forgive. Because I've experienced grace, now I can serve. Because I'm experiencing grace right now, there's this vital, intimate relationship with God, and as a result, I want to serve. I want to love others. I want to pray. It's driving me towards dependence because I've experienced the one thing. Jesus says, Mary has done the one thing that is needed. She is intimate with me. Jesus says, when I enter into your life, I'm going to blow away any expectation that you have of what it means to be good before me, what it means to be right before me, what it means to be acceptable to me. How do you know that? Immediately after this passage, now I'm going to read verses 1 to 4 of chapter 11. Jesus starts to teach us about prayer, prayer, being intimate with God. So right after this kind of interchange with Martha and saying, you know, Mary is doing what is better. She's just being intimate with me. Verses 1 to 4. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Teach us to be intimate with God. Verse 2. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. How does Jesus teach his disciples how to pray? He starts out by saying, you call out Father. Intimate relationship. And based on that, then you give glory. Based on that, 
There you ask for bread. Based on that, teach us to forgive because we're forgiven. All of the flows beginning with what? Father. When, I, when you pray, I want you to address God as Father. If the Muslim faith has 400 names for God and not one of them refers to God as Father, Christianity takes that entire concept of religion and turns it upside down and says right from the start, God is your Father. Address him as Father. In fact, very practical, pray. We, we so often address God as God. Elohim, Adonai. That's how we're addressing God when we say God, you know, we, that's how we pray. But Jesus says, pray asking him, calling him Father, trusting that he is your Father. That truth, that, on that basis, everything else flows out. That's where your joy comes from. That's where your rest comes from. And what he says is, you know, he starts out, he says, this is intimacy. You can't get more intimate than calling God your Father. This is a sign of dependence. You can't get more dependent than relying on God as your Father. So secure, yet so much closer to the Father. That's Jesus. Jesus himself, every time he prayed, he calls God Father. He's constantly dependent. This is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent Jesus who knows all, sees all, all wise, almighty. And yet you see a picture of utter dependence on his Father, constantly calling him Father. Why, why is that? It's because a father will always love you unconditionally. A father, a perfect father, you can never divorce yourself from your father. A father, in the father, you have status. You have a last name. In the father, you are an heir to the father. And Jesus is saying, I want you to have the same intimacy that I have with my father in heaven. That's what I want you to have. Jesus had the love of the father. You would never doubt that God loved Jesus He had an intimate relationship with the Father. And he's saying, based on that love, based on my love with the Father, I want you to now trust in God as your Father. Now, Jesus didn't have an easy life. In fact, he had a very hard life. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus says, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. God's own son. No place to rest his head. What he's saying is, I'm homeless. I have a father. I address God as father, and yet I'm homeless. Jesus, in Mark chapter 1, he's being baptized. And as he comes out of the water, the heavens open up, the spirit descends on him like a dove, and God himself, the voice of God comes out and says, this is my son whom I love. He's honoring his son. And yet here he says, I'm homeless. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one time in all the New Testament that Jesus, God's son, does not refer to God as his father. He says, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? In other words, on the cross, he experiences the ultimate dissociation, the ultimate divorce. On the cross, he experiences the ultimate homelessness because now, on the cross, he has no home, no spiritual cosmic home, no place where he can rest his head. He's got no home on earth. He's got no place in heaven, no place by the Father. He says, I am forsaken. I have no more father. 
And yet, do you know, on the cross, he still calls God his God, not even one hen of entitlement. He doesn't, at any point in time, demand anything. Even there, hanging on the cross, dying, bleeding, he's still obedient. He's still obedient. In Psalm 22, if you read, it is a picture of actually what Jesus was doing. It starts out, the the actual passage, Psalm 22, begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, Jesus is pretty much reciting the verses of Psalm 22. It's a psalm, a very prophetic psalm of what Christ would endure. So throughout the psalm, you start to hear, I am thirsty. And at the end, it says, it is finished. And Jesus here is pretty much reciting the verses of the psalm, fulfilling the prophecy, and what is he doing? He's worshiping on the cross. At his lowest point, dissociated from the Father, he's worshiping. Why? For you. For you. Jesus lost the Father so that you would have a Father. Jesus was forsaken by the Father so that you would be able to call God Father when we pray. Jesus is praying, but he's being forsaken so that you would be accepted. He was lost so that we could be found. He was utterly homeless, cosmically homeless, so that we would have a place at the right hand of God. That's what it means to have a home. That's our assurance. If you had to work to earn that, you will always be like Martha. You will always be working. You will all, and never feeling secure. You will always be crying out, don't you notice me? But if you trust that Jesus, who was all perfect, he lived the greatest life that we could ever, a life that we could never live. And yet he was forsaken for our sake. That is going to give you joy. Why? Because you've done nothing to earn it. And there's nothing we can do to ever lose it. That gives us joy. Incredible joy. On the cross, Jesus is working. Jesus is groaning. Jesus is laboring. He's sweating blood. He, blood is being poured out. The crown, the nails, and he's saying that is nothing compared to the fact that God himself has forsaken me. That is the ultimate work, being separated from God, his Father, so that we would have a place. We would have a place in the Father. What does that do? What does that do? It allows us to have an intimate, dynamic, lasting, loving, vital relationship with the Father. Why do you have a new agenda when the gospel enters into your life? Why is it that we can have a view of acceptance, a true view of goodness, a new view of what it really means to be acceptable to God? Why does God blow away our paradigm, our previous paradigm, what it means to be acceptable, what it means to come before God? And that's the last point. The gospel gives us a whole new relationship, a whole new relationship. Here's Jesus, Mary, in the context of a lesson. She's literally learning. And here we are learning from Mary in some ways. Mary's sitting by, leaves her work. She is an utter, she knows what this is going to cost her family. She knows that her reputation, her family's reputation, her, her family's standing in the community, it's all at stake. And yet at the sight of Christ, she actually leaves and sits and learns. Jesus is saying, I want you to listen. I want you to learn. It's not enough for you to just sit there and work and serve. I want you to learn. I want you to listen. I want you to hear. That's what it means to pray. That's what it means to open up the Bible and actually study the word. He wants you to listen and hear and study and and really become a student. 
really become a true disciple, a true follower. Back in the day, rabbis, as they would teach, they would choose specific people to actually follow them. And they would literally follow the rabbi as he walked. In fact, they would say that, that, the, that the, they would cl- follow so closely to their disciples that the disciples, as they would walk, the dirt from the ground, because the ground back then was not paved, it was a dirt road, would kick up into the air and the dust would get onto their disciples. So the ones who were closest were the ones who were dirtiest in many ways. And they were called such. They were the dust gatherers because they were the ones that were closest to, their, to the one that they followed, their rabbi. Jesus says, I want you to follow me. Look at Jesus. How does he respond to Mary? We think that in Mary's frustration and in her anger and in her pride and her self-righteousness, just like Jesus would turn to the Pharisees and rebuke them, you would think that Jesus would say, okay, Martha, this is where you're wrong. This is where Mary's good. That's how we read this oftentimes. But you have to look at the nuances of this text. Jesus is counseling Martha. Jesus is loving Martha. He could have easily said, you know, Martha, you are a fool. You know, Mary is wise and you're the fool. That's how we often discipline people we love, right? Martha's hurt. She's broken by this. So what does Jesus do? He counsels her. It starts out by saying, Martha, Martha. What does that mean? In the ancient Hebrew, whenever you repeated a word, the first time you say something, it was just an emphatic statement. But if you repeat a word, a doublet, Martha, Martha, it implied intense emotional expression. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When David's son died, Absalom, after Absalom actually conspired against David, he's seeing his son dead on the ground. He says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. There's intense emotional expression here. That means Jesus is feeling for Martha. She understand, he understands. He understands what it means to be incredibly good and yet forsaken. And so he looks at Martha. And he says, Martha, Martha. Intense emotional expression. He's counseling her. He feels for her. What he's saying, I know what it means to work and feel like a slave. I, in fact, I became sin on the cross. Mary understands that. That's why she's sitting here and, and learning from me. I will do that on the cross for you. Martha, here's why you're discouraged. Not because you didn't work hard enough. Not because you, were perf- you, were, you failed in this preparation here. Listen to my teaching. He's teaching Martha. He's calming Martha of her pride. Calming Martha of her anger. And he's drawing her back in. And he's saying, listen carefully to me. Your frustration, this experience, I mean, it's to teach you. It's a lesson. Mary did all that, she, all that was needed just to hear. You know, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus is hearing. He's a Pharisee. He's one of the religious people. His, the Pharisees are marked throughout Scripture to be very, very unlistening to Jesus. And yet here's Nicodemus. He seeks Jesus out. He wants to learn. And again, Jesus is teaching Nicodemus. And when he's teaching Nicodemus, he basically says, just as the Son of Man must be lifted up, just as the, the bronze snake, Moses lifted up the snake, 
the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's teaching Nicodemus the essence, the key to connecting with God. And in so doing, what he's saying is, you just have to behold the Son. It doesn't take any work to look at something. I mean, you could really, really stare, but that, that word there is just to behold. When you open your eyes, you don't work to see things. You just see. And you don't work to believe. You believe. When the Spirit transforms your heart, he says, Martha, that's why I just want you to listen. Mary's listening. She's doing all that's needed. That's all you need to do. It's the teacher. This is the key to intimacy. This is the key to joy. Listen to me. Hear the words because of what I'm about to do for you. Without me, there is no banquet. Without me, there is no meal. Without me, me, there's no celebration. Without me, there is no intimacy. Without me, your sacrifice means absolutely nothing. My love is not based on your goodness. My love is not based on your faithfulness. My love is not based on your works. In fact, my love is based on my goodness to you. That's how you get it. Recognize my goodness. Recognize my faithfulness. Recognize my work. Recognize my character on the cross. This week, as we exit from our worship sanctuary today, Let's all choose what is better. Can we all do that? To practice what is better? Let's understand what it means to rest in Christ. What that means is that uh, Sabbath is a rest from our physical work. God wants us to practice that. Why? Because it's a way of us demonstrating dependence. You know, when you work one day less in a week, you make one day less money back in the day in the agricultural uh, society that that the Hebrews lived in. That's one-seventh of your income down. What that means is you have to trust God's provision that much more. And it sets you free from any grip of what the world has on you, just a little bit more. And it's a, that's what the Sabbath really is. It's, it's dependence and freedom at the same time. And what he's saying is just as we rest from our physical work, we can rest from our spiritual labor by trusting in the work that was completed on the cross by Jesus. Can we practice that? That's what gives us joy. Rest in his character. Stop relying on your own works to set yourself free. Jesus says, anyone who comes to me, he will have freedom. He will have freedom. That's our approach to God. Let that become the essence, the key to our joy. That's what's going to fuel and drive your love for other people. That's what's going to fuel and drive your repentance. And when you repent, knowing and trusting that God is your Father because of the work that Christ has done for you, that is, that's when the repentance becomes real because you're connecting with the work that was done for you. That's an amazing thing. Can we practice that together this week? Let's pray together.